if we are really good in this work, we are right 70% of the time. Yeah. All of our M&E models, we're always giving absolutes, right? 100% success rates. And we, we preach that, but that's completely ridiculous in these contexts. So you're going to make huge mistakes and you make tons of small mistakes all the time, all the time. You're listening to Tariq Rebel. He is a longtime manager of humanitarian responses. He's led teams on the ground in pretty much all of the major disasters of the last decade. And these are the highest pressure management contexts that you can imagine. So I had a, a number of points I wanted to discuss in places that are chaotic like this and often so ethically compromised. How do you stay pointed in the right direction? Has the sector been truly professionalized, or do, does the ethic of the well-intentioned amateur still survive? Perhaps most importantly, what comes afterwards? This is a, a sector that tends to chew people up. So how do you personally stay intact throughout this work? This is One Step Forward. My name is Ian Quick. Please enjoy this interview with someone of really uh, unshakable personal conviction and also discipline to get the job done right. A warm welcome and thank you for coming by. First question, easy one to start. Where is your accent from? Right. So my accent changes based on where I'm at, but my father's German, my mother's Sri Lankan, uh, but her ancestors are Moroccan and Lebanese. <laughs> so. That is the most complicated one I've heard so far. I have to... So what's your full set of languages then? I'm going to be humiliated uh, here, but go on. No, no, it's only English, German, French. It's oh, terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I, this is a problem I have. If you meet someone at the pub, how do you explain what you do for a living? Generally, just saying um, when there are big emergencies around the world, I would go out and help mm -hmm. uh, and work for Oxfam, which usually people know Oxfam. So that's a good reference point. Where has that taken you geographically over the years? Primarily, I worked in, in Africa, in Central, West, East Africa. Uh, not at all in the so southern part or not so much in the northern part either. Uh, Middle East, uh, Iraq and Yemen, and uh, Philippines and Afghanistan. What was the first? You started with MSF, no? What was the f yeah. first... Um, actually, the first one was as an intern with a very small NGO in Afghanistan. Oh yeah, which one? Yeah, Afghan Aid, which is I've heard uh, of it. Yeah, is a is a very interesting. It was a great start because it's a thirty year old NGO that works only in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a mix between an INGO because it was founded by British members of the House of Lords, mm -hmm. but. Um, is almost exclusively staffed by Afghans who have worked for the organization for 10, 15, 20 years. Mm. So you get, get brought into this really rich organizational culture, which is what I found out later, quite rare <laughs> in the sector, where there's so much turnover and yeah. so little identity. So here was the opposite, quite an identity-heavy organization. Do you think it shaped your thinking starting off in a small institutional setting. Yeah. What was great there was, again, this mix of, one, it's, it is mainly staffed by the Afghans or Pakistanis, 
so you have this deep heritage you have so little turnover so mm-hmm. like i said even drivers that have worked there for 15 years mm. um you know and then the senior management middle management uh, people in the field and headquarters so so you get that whole um experience about you know what it is to to really live with nationals to to mm. engage national culture to be respectful to know where you fit in as a as a foreigner as a non-national um and and i think when i compare it to the expat experience in inverted mm. commas this was not one it wasn't at all because you know being an expat didn't give you any state there were only two other expats in the whole organization at the time mm. and you know it was the country director and one other senior director but what was it about that initial experience in afghanistan that made you want to keep going um in a similar yeah. well even in a arguably to a more difficult side of the house from uh, Afghan aid, which yes. has been around a long time, has a sort of fairly measured approach, I would say, towards more the humanitarian, the crisis response end of things. So it was definitely that I found... So I'm, I'm a bit of an... I'm an adrenaline person. And so development was interesting. And, yeah. and But, you know, the thought of being in emergencies or being on the humanitarian side was really appealing. Mm-hmm. So... So having seen, you know, having done a short time with Afghan aid and seen kind of a more post-emergency setting, I was like, well, what would it be like to be more in the thick of it? And also, actually, a lot of my Afghan aid colleagues, they were also quite um, nostalgic. <laughs> well, this sounds horrible, but, you know, people in the sector understand what I mean. They also preferred the humanitarian work to the mm. more, the slower kind of longer term development work mm. because they had all been in that in several emergency phases mm-hmm. and and been there and so i heard lots of stories as well mm. so i think it was that and if i look back that was the right choice for me mm-hmm. um, without getting ideological about it what was your first taste of that adrenaline <laughs> as you termed it then yeah so interestingly just before so it was definitely msf where i did five deployments but just before i had one other smaller ngo i did work with in darfur but i left after a month and that was a very negative experience not because darfur was crazy but darfur was sorry your first humanitarian experience was a month in darfur yes that's pretty much the deep end no exactly and i wanted that but this organization was doing lots of things that I questioned mm-hmm. and I decided to leave. Um, wasn't the only time I decided to do that. <laughs> and and then that confirmed to me that maybe going to a place like MSF would be better. And mm. I, I think in hindsight that was that was confirmed by the experiences, even though there were some negative ones as well. And MSF is famous as an organization with very strong values, some would say, even doct- sort of a doctrinaire approach, yeah. um, which clearly has its place was that was that the key factor for you then absolutely i saw i mean i, I saw them in darfur on the mm-hmm. ground and i was impressed uh, right. i think anyone who in the field sees msf gets mm-hmm. impressed just by the the scale is usually quite big so you get drawn to that obviously but also i like the fact that they were catering to people who were entering the field so mm-hmm. you know um, some organizations and obviously the UN recruit based on experience. So mm-hmm. those are not even options. And with MSF, uh, ACF is another one. You actually have a kind of option of learning. They, they really work with people um, and equip you. But I, I will go back to the doctrinaire thing you mentioned, which is definitely true. I mean, you know, you get brainwashed. 
<laughs> in the NSF, you know, credo steeped and, in the organization's values. I think exactly. is what you're trying to say. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so you you really have that you learn, and and I think it's when you leave MSF that you realize, oh wait, some of these things. I mean, they may be right, but there are other perspectives out there. Was there a case where that seemed to work really well? What was so astonishing in Burundi and in Cameroon was, again, the absence of everyone else. Mm-hmm. I think in Cameroon there was one other NGO and UNHCR because they were refugees, but a very small HCR operation. Um, and then in Burundi there was practically no one. Mm. And MSF identified these as crises and treated them as you know, high priorities. Mm-hmm. And we see this on and on with MSF. Um, I still have friends who will tell me they're going to this country. And honestly, there's nothing in the news. Mm. And then when you hear their accounts, the the figures, the morbidity, mortality statistics are horrific. Mm -hmm. But there is no news report. There's no other agency present, no donor that's activating funds. And MSF, through its own internal monitoring and, and kind of, you know, surveillance has identified these. So I think what's what's spectacular about that is in terms of the humanitarian ethos, that is the purest form of it. Mm-hmm. It's not about the media, it's not about fundraising, it's not about popularity. You worked on quite an unusual model, I suppose, personally, in that you were surge deployed effectively mm-hmm. uh, when there was a, a major crisis. Yeah. Which is a model that attracts uh, a lot of criticism from some people, mm-hmm. um, but at the same time, it's hard to envisage it working any other way. <laughs> you can't take a set of resources which is deployed to do one thing and suddenly and instantly repurpose them to do another. Uh, and you've adverted uh, in our conversations to the tensions and difficulties. Was there a case which sticks in your mind where that worked really, really well, where that rapid ramp up of human resources on the ground, um, technical skills, etc., really shaped the outcome in a good way. Yeah. From, from the deployments I was involved in, I think the outcomes were quantifiably good in each case. I don't think we had a response where you could say we didn't reach benchmarks we wanted to reach at mm-hmm. the outset. I say that because too, too often that is brushed aside and we get into the nitty-gritty and mm-hmm. the qualitative mm-hmm. and then we ignore that well half a million people were helped <laughs> uh, with water that is not nothing <laughs> exactly so you know um uh so i think that's really important to hold on to but i do think it is important to recognize that each time the surge model was contested mm-hmm. internally mm-hmm. um there was heavy disagreement about its place, about its um, role, about its prioritization. Mm-hmm. And there was a real disconnect, almost to the point where you could say, if you ask different people, you'd get different answers. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that at some point, you have to self-define where you stand yep. and how strong you're going to represent that opinion um, and you'll have allies and, and, you know, people that are not allies that you confront with that opinion. But if you rely on guidance, you're going to be confused and confused to the point of paralysis. That's what I often witnessed elsewhere, where mm. it wasn't uh, directly deployed, but, you know, from accounts 
this sort of paralysis where people are just waiting for clear instruction. Go and go to this level, but that never comes. Mm. Well, how do you find your bearing, your orientations in that sort of situation then, if it does come down to the, the person to a large extent? Yeah, I think while I was doing this work, I was definitely a pure humanitarian. For me, it's about life-saving and sounds like a platitude or a cliche but it isn't you know it is regardless about regardless of origin of the people you're dealing with regardless of the type of issue you know you go out to save lives and for me that that is the priority for me there is almost nothing that supersedes that if you wanted to say well what would have qualified that it would be, for example, do no harm, right? Mm -hmm. So you're going to enter this place and your intervention because of who you represent or because of tensions is going to cause additional harm, then that's a valid point. But to say it's about personalities who may be hurt or mm -hmm. grieved because of your presence or programs that are deprioritized because yours is bigger, that for me is, is not even a valid counterpoint. Mm -hmm. Well, as, as you look back on that, those 10 years, I guess, is there something that sticks out in your mind as a bit of work you're particularly proud of? Actually, there's so many. So That's, that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, no, it really is. When I left Oxfam, I'm, I mentioned explicitly that for me it was the greatest job in the world, that even if I stop now and do something else, that, you know, this is probably the best thing I, I, I will do. So I would say I loved almost every deployment in that sense. But if you ask me one that I was really proud of, I think it's really difficult. I think going into Yemen last year was maybe a great you know, it was one of those crises where besides uh, MSF and the ICRC, the international actors were essentially absent mm -hmm. um, because of the, the heavy scale of the airstrikes. You don't really see that even in Iraq and Syria. You don't see that complete absence, right? I mean, there was always something going on. Mm -hmm. But in Yemen, you literally had a, a wasteland. So... When we got in, it was quite difficult to get in. It took a lot of convincing. And um, the scale of the bombing is the scariest thing I've ever experienced in my life, uh, day after day. But I was proud that we did it, that, that we continued to scale up after the initial surge. But to actually do assessments in a place where, say, people have been for four months, five months, and talk to people who actually say to you that you're the first person they've spoken to, mm -hmm. that doesn't happen in 2015, 16 anymore. Mm. It's, it's the opposite. Sometimes we say, you know, there's a circus around these big crises, <laughs> right? Sometimes, yes. So it's extraordinary. You just meet people and there is no data. There is no... Everything is you are discovering. So I think that's quite extraordinary. Mm. Um, and... That's where we were proud because we did feel, okay, we're really helping people that are not being helped. Mm. And relatedly, and, and feel free to not answer this um, if you want, what were the points at which you thought this has really gone wrong? So I resigned um, twice out of principle, and in both cases it was 
things that I deemed quite horrific. One was just behavior that violated um, the code of ethics mm -hmm. um, that humanitarians should have. In this case, that the organization actually had in writing. And I think what was disappointing was that at all levels of the hierarchy, the situation was underplayed mm -hmm. and not considered important. I think if you're humanitarian, you are working in an ethical sector. Mm -hmm. So you can't just say this is like being a shopkeeper or owning a restaurant or being a plumber. That's not the same. If you're a plumber and you do stuff, first of all, it's not really anyone's business anyway, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you're a good plumber, then that's fine. Here it is actually everyone's business what you do. Mm. Um, during working hours, after working hours, uh, you know, representing the organization, mm -hmm. And if you don't want to accept that, then, you know, do one of the other th many jobs that don't require that of you, you know. What's the best risk you've ever taken? I think, I think definitely. Judged in retrospect. Yeah, I think, I think Yemen. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, you know, besides our, the colleagues from MSF, ICRC and, you know, a couple of UN colleagues, um, there was no one there. And so... There was no none of that comfort level of being together and everyone mm -hmm. doing things. It was you had to go in, and um, it was really frightening. And mm -hmm. so everyone that came in, you know, we had to. I mean, I personally also explained to people this is not like coming to South Sudan. This is not like coming into even into you know highly volatile places like Bangui or Darfur. This is worse mm -hmm. these are f-15s these are tomahawk cruise missiles this is severe and mm. uh we can't control that it's not like negotiating with warlords um, this goes well beyond that but i also felt that in that context dealing with the uh with many of the armed groups on the ground you found that there was an openness towards humanitarian intervention mm -hmm that you don't find in other contexts. Like you can do things in Yemen, you can't do in Somalia, you can't do in Acme parts of Mali. So actually there was this real dichotomy. So on the one hand, you have this lethal risk of these constant airstrikes pounding everything, including many humanitarian installations. I mean, Oxfam's warehouse was bombed, you know. So how can you say to someone, oh, the Oxfam office is a safe place? Well, the warehouse wasn't. But then... On the other hand, explain to people, yes, but the actual warring parties on the ground, for the most part, are going to give you a level of reception that you don't see in other places where humanitarians can't even dream of going. And to many people, that would sound quite extraordinary. How on earth do you prepare for that? How do you get guidance, you know, not of a directive managerial kind, but how do you just get support and some sort of sounding board on how to operate in that environment? I think that's a really tough one. I think in retrospect, what's missing here is that the teams that you work with, so especially in my time in Oxfam, because you end up doing multiple deployments. You do deployments with people in different contexts. Mm -hmm. And obviously there are people that work less well with you and you work less well with them. But then there's lots of camaraderie and lots of rapports that you build up. Um, where there's an instinctive level of trust, there's a high level of, of shared values. And beyond that, of open and frank discussion. And mm. so what was great was having people that 
we'd have very frank discussions about things. And I remember in the Ebola crisis where we were hopelessly late in deploying, mm. but we also didn't have the expertise of someone like MSF in terms of dealing with those sorts of issues that you deal with. We had discussions where, which were loud, which were noisy, and everyone was challenging everyone. And there were times where I let myself also be overturned on mm -hmm. key issues. And I gave an ultimatum and said, okay, we'll do it your way. If it doesn't work in six days, then we do it my way. <laughs> that that's clear. And actually it worked their way. I was going to say, how did it turn out? <laughs> work their way uh, on the, that issue. And mm. I went to them um, and apologized mm -hmm. and said, you know, I made a mistake. And I said that also in front of the whole team. But I said, I'm happy that we listened to what you said and not what I said, because you were right. And a lot of this is not science. A lot of this is instinct. And I think that's one of the key things I would always say, if we are really good in this work, we are right 70% of the time. Yeah. All of our M&E models, we're always giving absolutes, right? 100% mm -hmm. success rates. Yeah. And we, we preach that, but that's completely ridiculous in this context, in these contexts. So you're going to make huge mistakes, you're going to make tons of small mistakes all the time, all the time. And the second part I was saying is that we're making uh, decisions it's, with 50% yeah. of the information available. Mm -hmm. You're so dark, you know, it's the f fog of war, but also the fog of the typhoon, the fog of, you know, Ebola. You do not know. Mm. And sometimes you know post hoc, sometimes you will never know. Mm. And then the final thing I would say, it's better to make a bad decision than no decision, always. Mm. always better and then own that decision so there were many calls where I told bosses I screwed up um, the team screwed up but usually I said I to them if they weren't on the call and said you know we screwed up like you know made the wrong decision uh, next time we'll do better mm. but that is really important and that people see that because I think when you have the ability to make mistakes that frees up that builds confidence mm. and people realize that What's striking to me is the, the very valid contrast you draw between the very real feeling description you just gave and what you find in policies and procedures and management models, really, um, in the humanitarian sector and certainly in the development sector. What was the hardest part of that to learn? It sounds like something that is very much your personal traits mm. and much less something that was trained into you that was uh, handed down to you by the organization now, how do you develop that disposition i guess being a manager is not about being the smartest guy or being the technically best engineer doctor nutritionist at all mm. it's about being the best manager we kind of scoff at that, but in too many cases, you see the, the doctor, the engineer, who's super intelligent, has tons of experience, but is very introverted, has zero leadership skills, very conflictual. You know, people hate working with this person. Mm. Uh, organization, a disaster, can't remember anything, rude. Well, great that they're a great surgeon, mm. but let them be a surgeon mm. and credit them for that. But in the humanitarian sector, we have this where in the private sector, you know, the CEO of Boeing is not the best engineer at Boeing. <laughs> you know, the CEO of Walmart is not the guy I'll that was the best that. shop manager. You're probably right, yes. <laughs> you know, he's yeah. not the best shop manager who had the best outlet in all of the U.S. and now he's the head of Walmart. But this is how it happens in the humanitarian sector. Why do you think that is? It's one because I think 
in some ways, humanitarianism has never made the jump from small scale to large scale. Mm. So, you know, outside of MSF and ICRC, WFP, the logistics, for example, is still quite small scale, right? Like DIY, figure it out as you go, reinvent the wheel, mm. 50,000 logisticians thinking about the same problem <laughs> from scratch. And the same happens in this sense. Did I get any training on these things? I didn't, mm. you know. And so I think in my case, I was fortunate that my background lent itself. But no, there was no training per se about how to make difficult decisions in stress, you know, uh, how to deal with people who are burned out, how to fire people. I've had to let go of many, many people in my time. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things people will say is that as much as they enjoyed working with me, they probably, I mean, I had a nickname, nickname such as Sledgehammer. In Congo, they called my office, the national staff called my, own, uh, my office, The Hague. <laughs> and, and I overheard that from, mm. from some national staff. Like, they were seeing someone go to my office, and I was out with them. They're like, oh, he's going to The Hague. And it's like... The yeah. Hague is in the seat of the International mm. Criminal Court, I guess. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I did have those nicknames mm -hmm. as well. And, yeah, I think that's important as well. It's not a popularity contest. Mm. What was the best piece of advice you ever got in that regard, if not actual training? Did someone ever give you something that really stuck with you? There's so many people that really did. I think one of the best pieces of advice was actually watching and learning from this driver we had in MSF in Congo Brazzaville. He, he was an exceptional person. I mean, he was very close to a lot of the conflict parties and had very good relations. But he mm. was a humanitarian, so he never joined those groups. And I would watch him, because we were operating in across front lines, I would watch him negotiate, I would watch him interact with people um, when it came to simple things like not paying a bribe to very big questions about, you know, we want you to transport this, this or that, we want you to do this or that for us, and then we'll let you go through. Mm -hmm. And I would speak to him and listen and, and just watch him interact. And he had that perfect mix of, of respect and being deferential in that sense, but also knowing all the values to the point that he know, knew when no is no. And he had red lines and he was proud of the work he did. He actually viewed himself and he would look at me and said, you know, driving this truck for me across Congo Brazzaville, you know, I'm so proud. It's a badge of honor for me, you know. Mm. And... Uh, he explained many things to me about security management, about access in, in conflict zones, but also just watching him was one of the great learning experiences. Mm. What was his name? So Dominique, but yeah. uh, everyone called him uh, Maître, including very senior, <laughs> very, very senior armed groups, right. members of armed groups that would, and which is extraordinary when you know, you know how those things work when a driver walks up and gets more respect than anyone else in your group and they call him maître mm. and, and you, you know, mister, then you know, uh, maître in French means, uh, well, it means master, but it's actually much more, it's like sir or lord. Yeah. Oh, merci, Dominique. <laughs> yeah. Looking back on all that, would you change anything? Would you change any of those 
decisions career-wise or in terms of uh, how to do the job? 10 years is a long time in and of itself, but 10 years of this kind of work is a really long time. What would you change? Mm, actually, I don't know, because even the experiences, the two negative ones where I resigned, they were really important in a formative way. They happened very early on, and they were important for me to figure out what this all meant in that sense. I would like to change those two experiences just in an absolute sense, you know, they were negative and things were happening, not just to me or not to me at all, actually, to other people that I think were very harmful. Mm. And I think, you know, I wish those other people that suffered those didn't have to go through them. So I think I would like to change those. But otherwise, no, I think I think uh, overall it was it was good. Any additional thoughts as you look back with the benefit of hindsight you're in london essentially taking a, a pause yeah. at, at the moment which is something i did a few years ago i think for for similar reasons yeah any anything you would add based on having that bit of of distance now mm. over a, a couple of months working in humanitarian as i said i mentioned this at one point um is is different than other jobs mm. It's, it's, it's like a calling almost, right? So you do it and there's a high... You, you have to take the whole package. And I think if you want to do this, you have to accept the full package if you want to do it right. You can't be one foot in, one foot out. You can't have other priorities. So you do it. Because it's like that, you can't do it for a long time. And I think I, I, um, you know, I made the decision uh, in 2015 to stop... Mm. Uh, because I could see internal warning signs. And in retrospect, I'm even happier that I listened to those warning signs because from a career point, this was suicidal um, and nonsensical, if you will. But it was really the best thing for me as a person. Mm. And I think that's where the sector is not good at prioritizing people. People are just deployed one after, you know, one crisis after the next and you get a little breathing space and sometimes you don't in between but you need to realize you can do this for a certain amount of years you cannot do this as a career for 30 40 years mm. and those people that do they're gonna have a high cost to pay i don't think that's possible will you go back then right now no i wouldn't go back mm. um but it's still the greatest job in the world it's still the best thing i've done and probably will ever do but no i think i might do like some smaller you know pieces of work consulting or helping out or whatever but no i i wouldn't uh i wouldn't go back right now and i mean never say never but no in the foreseeable future i wouldn't are listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at onestepforward.fm. Thanks and bye for now.